I think as practitioners now, the responsibility, I think, as you mentioned, have increased. So what I mean by that is, let's say you're a practitioner working within football. I think if it was maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, a lot of your work would be player facing and you would be working maybe with a chef and you'd be working with other members of the multidisciplinary team, doctor, psychologist, physio, S&C, biomechanics, sports science. But now this team has extended. You might be dealing with agents, you know, more and more. You might be dealing more and more with partners. You'll be dealing with club and player liaison officers. You might be dealing with architects for the structure of you know new parts of training grounds. You'll be dealing with a bigger chef team. You might be dealing with the CEO. Uh, you might be dealing with the exec team commercially, legal team. So actually your skill set now, you're being pushed and pulled away from traditionally what we're taught through degrees and postgraduate degrees, which is ultimately working with the athlete. And a lot more of these conversations are a lot more commercial in nature. And there's not a lot of things that prepare you for these. So at times, you know, I really believe it's, you know, I believe strongly that you need someone just to run through the examples with, you know, to test and to see how they would apply it. Hello and welcome back to the Supporting Champions podcast. I'm Steve Ingham and if this is your first time tuning in then you're in for a treat. This is where we explore the often invisible aspects of achieving greatness and aspiring to perform whether in sport, business or life in general. We're not just about the headlines here, we're about the fine print, the strategies, the setbacks and the comebacks that make the journey worthwhile and we talk to experts from various fields, from coaches and scientists to leaders and, of course, performers. Those people who are out there trying. So it's not just about the performers. These are also about the people behind the scenes, the ones who are making champions what they are. This podcast isn't just for the elites or the top professionals. It's for anyone who believes in pushing their own boundaries, who believes in the power of progress over perfection. It's for anyone who's committed to improving to learning and to taking action. Whether you're a student, a professional or someone simply interested in personal growth, there's something here for you. So if you're ready to dig deeper and apply some real world insights to your own life, you're in the right place. The Supporting Champions podcast is sponsored by Athlete Now, a new venture I'm involved in. Now, Athlete Now is a new platform that's revolutionizing the connection between athletes and sports performance practitioners. We know that in the world of sports, the pursuit of peak performance is a constant journey and it can often feel like a bit of a solo mission. And nowadays, with the high tech landscape of wearables, nutrition, mental training, Navigating your path to excellence might seem overwhelming. An athlete now aims to demystify this process, offering you straightforward guidance. So athlete now or theathletenow.com, what's it all about? Well, if you're an athlete, then you know that the margin between good and great is influenced often by the expertise that's guiding you. But where can you find that expertise? Athlete Now offers the answer, granting you access to a curated selection of sports science, medicine and coaching professionals. And they're not just qualified, but they're rigorously vetted so that you can search by experience, specialism, location or accreditation to suit your needs. And Athlete Now is emerging as the solution for athletes seeking to push their limits and get the support they need. For the professional practitioners listening in, Athlete Now solves the age-old question, how do you stand out in a sea of talent? And the platform not only showcases your skills, but connects you directly with those who need them most. So whether you're a nutritionist whose strategies are fueling the champions, or a psychologist whose techniques are helping athletes to cope, strive and perform, Athlete Now is your stage. For athletes, the platform is free. And for practitioners, you can sign up half price for this first year. Only £10 for the foundation tier, which will allow you to get your profile started or upgrade for the professional tier where you can get advanced features such as the jobs boards, community access and practice guides. And that's just for £50 per year. So Athlete Now is more than just a directory. It's a community committed to excellence ensuring athletes and sports professionals are perfectly paired to help support each other's ambitions together. So whether you're striving to compete or building a career, helping others do so, 
Athlete Now is really where it's at. So take a look at theathletenow.com. In this episode, I speak to James Collins, esteemed performance nutritionist and author of The Energy Plan. Now, James has got an impressive background, having worked with high-profile organizations such as Arsenal and the FA, where his expertise in sports nutrition has played a really pivotal role. Throughout our discussion, James shares his journey into the world of sports nutrition, providing insights into his experiences and the lessons he's learned along the way. And his unique perspective and philosophy, shaped by the years of working with both individual athletes and team sports, offer a deeper understanding of the diverse nutritional strategies required in different sporting contexts. We also touch on the challenges faced by those entering into the sports nutrition industry, a field that while growing still presents hurdles for career development. And James's experience in this area is particularly relevant given the increasing interest in sports nutrition among upcoming professionals. In our conversation, James discusses his approach to nutrition, highlighting the importance of tailored strategies to meet specific needs of athletes and teams. And he also shared his thoughts on working with elite executives and entertainers drawing parallels and distinctions between their nutritional requirements and those of athletes. Finally, we delve into James's current work at Intragroup and his vision for the future of sports nutrition, exploring how his contributions continue to shape and influence the field. Well, very warm welcome to the podcast, James. How are you today? Steve, I'm keeping really well. Uh, I'm just down in London as we have this conversation. Slightly overcast and a bit chilly, but I'm keeping well and it's... uh, it's really nice to be on here. Oh, it's so good to connect, James. We've how long have we known each other? I don't know, maybe tw- nearly twenty years or so. But um, so enjoy enjoyed working with you a long time ago. Now um, I'm keen to ask you about what you're up to at the moment with your new venture, Intra. It's probably not so so new now, is it? You've been working away at that for a, for a while. Um, but it'd be remiss of me not to tap into your rich experience and insights. Um, so before we go any further, just just give us a bit of a background to you, um, how you got into the area, uh, some of your experiences. Yeah, thanks very much, Steve. Um, I'm probably going to start back when we first got to know each other, right? So my, you know, I started working, my work as a practitioner, as a sports nutritionist, started with the UK Sports Institute, obviously formerly to us, known as the EIS. And that was back in 2006. So I I was actually quite fortunate if I look back on it, Steve, because I just finished my master's in sports nutrition at Loughborough. And thinking back to the time there, and I'm I'm sure it was similar for you in physiology, the amount of positions that were available within sports nutrition, physiology, maybe even sports science, especially in Olympic sports, then were really limited. And UK Sport did this fast track program uh, where they fast tracked you in a year. And I worked within the UK Sports Institute then. And my first sport was track and field. And obviously, that's when we worked together. And I remember us meeting over a few athletes at Loughborough and discussing strategies for some of the middle distance runners, which was great. You know, I really enjoyed that first year. And if I'm honest, Steve, that being my first sport athletics, I really enjoyed it from a nutrition perspective because it was so pure, it was so measurable. And, you know, I liked the variety of being down in Lee Valley, working with the sprinters and, you know, using nutrition to affect uh, strength, you know, affect muscle mass and, you know, explosive power. That was great. And likewise, you know, some of the athletes we were talking about, we were looking at endurance as well and looking at the nutrition considerations there. So I think for me, that was my first step, I think both as a practitioner but as a sport within track and field. And I I worked with them through the Beijing 2008 uh, Olympic cycle. And that was an interesting one for us and stayed within the Institute up towards 2010. And at that time, uh, the job came up at Arsenal. And I guess many years ago, I used to play football. That was my main interest. So for me to go into a club, I was really interested in that. They had a really interesting structure. And I joined in 2010. And spent seven seasons developing uh, the nutrition <coughs> service within the club. So my role initially was a, as first team nutritionist. And then we grew the service out for the women's team, uh, for the academy and right across the athletic development pathway. And, you know, I really enjoyed that role. And at the time, it was really about embedding 
a nutrition service within a team, which was a very good team in terms of doctor, physiotherapy, sports science, but there was no nutrition previously. And, you know, it had to find its way and find its place both within the multidisciplinary team, but also engaging the players as well. So that was another challenge. We might come back to that. But stayed there for seven seasons uh, and along the way consulted with England uh, 2014 World Cup. Uh, one of the most unsuccessful, Steve, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm really honest. <laughs> There's lots of learnings there. I think it's important to be transparent about these things. And then with France, which was better, uh, uh, consulted with them the 2018 World Cup. And I guess for me along the way and with some of our meetings, Steve, one of my passions has always been the work within elite sport, which I've loved. But I've always wanted to have uh, one foot outside of elite sport. So at the time, uh, I had a private practice in Harley Street as part of the Centre for Health and Human Performance. And essentially at that time, we were really taking a lot of the work with practitioners in sport and applying it to the everyday consumer, the weekend warrior. You know, we had business people coming through. We had uh, musicians. We had people doing La Tap, people doing Aconcagua, uh, those doing Marathon de Saab. So some really interesting challenges to uh, to use nutrition within then. And that sort of led me really, you know, coming full circle to this, Steve, in 2019 uh, to set up Intra Performance Group. And that's where we are today. And my passion has always really been to have a team working on different projects, but also collaborating as a team. And I guess Intra Performance Group today, we're London-based, uh, but we work internationally. And uh we work probably in three key strands. You know, the first one is we work with individual talent. And I say talent quite deliberately because we have individual elite athletes, uh, footballers from the top five European leagues, uh, musicians and business executives. And we provide year-round support to them uh, as individuals. The second is we work with organizations. So historically, we would embed practitioners within organizations. So we had a five-year, sorry, a four-year project running with Chelsea, embedding the practitioners there, embedding them within different sports, and more recently, working with different corporate organizations to put on programs year-round to, I guess, improve uh, the, the corporate well-being outcomes uh, for the different staff within these organizations. And the third one is research and development. And we have, we do different work with confederations such as UEFA and fed national uh, federations as well to help them answer different performance-related questions as well and help them provide solutions to those. So that's pretty much where we are today, uh, Steve. And I won't go on for too much longer, but hopefully that frames a little bit with, you know, some of my interests and, you know, intro as well. Love that. So there's been such a, an interesting and varied but, but pro progressing ever-changing demands on on you are you how do you conduct your nutrition in your life i'm always curious to this because i i succumb to training mistakes that i would never <laughs> allow in athletes that i work with but when you're when you're thinking about your own nutrition if you've got a particular vice or are you are you monk like, and that you're a Puritan that uh, you you would never never transgress? Well, you know what, Steve. The first thing I would say, I mean, I definitely have vices, and I actually think it's really important to have those, and especially within sports, I think it's really important to show those to athletes as well. And I think within definitely within nutrition, um, maybe less so within sports. Uh, Nutrition can almost be seen as this perfect discipline where, you know, we're eating healthily all the time. But actually, the reality is sometimes it's, you know, things are quite messy and we want people to eat in a way that's, which is quite functional. So it's about results. And I think there's nothing there's nothing more important maybe within the sport when you're eating with the athletes, you know, to show them that, you know, at times you'll have a pudding or at times that, you know, you're open to wider experiences around food and i think that humanizes what we do i don't want to bridge your answer too much because the question you're asking about my vices so for sure i've got a sweet tooth so for me pastry at the weekend pan of chocolate, <clears throat> i mean that's just oh, it's just it. food. it's, yeah. it's mid-morning i'm getting hungry listening to that what <laughs> what um and how do you manage that do you do you have a way of sort of capping controlling um or limiting what's can i can i get into the, your specific own personal tactic there so what i would say is yeah my own personal tactic 
I would have a rhythm to my week and I, I probably use rhythm as the right expression where, you know, what we're not talking about is it being ultra prescriptive, but I have different principles about how I fuel different days. You know, for example, for me, just like I would say, to, you know, to my clients. So, you know, on days where I'm, I'm training, I may be running and doing some weights. I'll eat slightly differently to on days where I'm, I might be a bit more desk bound I mean, interestingly for me, I've, I've just taken up Pilates, Steve, Reformer Pilates uh, on Saturday, which I'm absolutely loving, by the way. I'm a huge advocate. And, um, you know, for us, there's a social element to this, too. So we have a group that will do that. And for us, it's about having a coffee, having a pastry and actually getting together after the session as well. So I think in answer to your question, building the different treats and building things in socially is, is really important to me. And I think to a lot of our clients as well. Uh, you know, whether it's family meal times being together, whether it's teammates being together, or whether it's co-workers, you know, I think food plays such an important part for us as individuals and, you know, our culture that um, yeah, it's really important we acknowledge that. I think. Yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree. I mean, cycling at the weekend with friends for three hours and I'm always a little bit surprised. I come back and I'm a bit heavier maybe from a three hour ride maybe too many coffees or cakes, but that as a destination, you know, it, it feels actually as though it's, it's sort of becoming acceptable as part of that social experience. Talking to, to a number of people about this idea of ways in which we can, we can in increase the, the habits, improve the affinity with physical exercise. And one of those being a social connection too. So I, lo I love that example. It's a really interesting point, Steve, you know, and I think as we're coming towards New Year now as well, you know, one I think one of the most interesting things around we have people making changes, don't we? We have a lot of clients, I'm sure, that we're making dietary changes in New Year exercise programs. And just that, I think that reminder to one, make it fun, but also to, you know, trying to make it uh, social where possible, right? Like you're saying about the weekend ride, like I'm saying about the, the group that I do at the weekends, it just it makes such a difference in terms of that sticking. Yeah. And so did it always feel for you back in the day, 2006, 10 years after I'd sort of started? So I, I kind of, I sort of tripped into the industry. Um, I had a background of applying my knowledge. Um, 2006, we were sort of on that upward journey. The, the Olympics had been awarded in, the, in, in London and what do you think, looking back, meant that in a pool of a small number of, of practitioners that might be viable as employable uh, prospects, what separated you out from the rest? What allowed you to sort of take the opportunity of those trainee intern programs at the time? It's, well, it's a really good question, Steve. Um I think there's probably a couple of things. So I think prior to, I think there was a life experience element of this and probably something that's removed from technical knowledge with nutrition. So actually one I don't often talk a lot about is previously, so I went to Loughborough and did my undergrad there, but prior to that, uh, I was in the US on a soccer scholarship. So I went out, I left uh, when I was 18, went straight out to upstate New York, didn't really know what I was getting into and sort of threw myself into this experience. And if I'm honest, at that time, that was probably where I had my first exposure deeply with nutrition because within collegiate sports, that was already embedded. It was part of the conversation a little bit. And not only did I just love the collegiate sports side, you know, I came back, you know, it really sort of took me on this journey. It also, the light came on a little bit with nutrition. Um, so I think there was an element of that, you know, alongside my work, I, I did uh, football coaching as well and got a couple of my coaching badges. So one of the things that I was learning at the time was just how to communicate uh, with athletes, how to learn how to communicate as a coach, you know, how to structure a session and how to, and how to change this session and be open to different types of feedback. So I think actually when I was going for this interview for the fast track program and you're totally right at the time. There were lots of people going for these positions because the only reason they were created was because of the funding, right, for 2012. Mm. So we're incredibly fortunate. But I remember drawing on the experiences. And actually at that time, the depth of experience within nutrition was relatively limited. So, you know, I, 
you know, rightly or wrongly at that time, I was drawing on these different experiences interpersonally, having a process maybe with coaching and, you know, giving some examples here. Um, I think on the other side, Steve, as well, and this is, again, being really transparent, um, when I was doing my MSc at Loughborough, we had our projects um, during the summer. You, you, you probably remember this as well, right? You're writing these up um, during doing your dissertation. And I think at that time, I remember thinking, well, at the end of this year, I'm going to be applying for jobs. I really need to get some deep exposure quite quickly and was really open to turning my hand to anything. I remember, do you remember Loughborough Sports, uh, where there would be the opportunity to work with the different teams on campus? So threw myself, you know, threw myself into that. Initially, it was a few presentations, really just feeling what felt right. Again, getting some, you know, really good feedback. And I think I remember at the time Kate Goodger was involved in that as well, uh, who's uh, obviously a prominent psychologist. And, you know, I, I remember distinctly that that was interesting. But at the time, you know, I remember going up to Blackburn Rovers. And this was at a time where uh, Tony Strudwick was in post at Blackburn Rovers, who, you know, one o'clock forward, 14 years later, we were working in England together in Brazil. But at that time, he was looking for some support. And I said, look, you know, I'll do it. I'll, I'll come up there. And I went up there a couple of days a week, stayed over. And it was just the best learning experience, Steve, because initially, within a club environment, going in as a practitioner, I had no concept of how it ran, no concept of what other team members were looking like absolutely no concept really of interdisciplinary support you know and how to link your service to strength and conditioning you know to medical as well and I think it was those experiences and I really enjoyed that work and that kind of gave me some momentum going into this interview and I was already making mistakes and learning and uh, and I was enjoying my journey as well and I had some good examples uh, to give and, uh, and I'd be interested in your thought on this Steve as well and I think when you're younger as a practitioner and this was definitely true for me in the early years at the institute you're pretty fearless you know i think at that time you, you probably don't know what you don't know um and this is probably linked to the you know uh, the dunning kruger effect and other other things as well but it's uh it's an interesting time so you're really cavalier but i think in a way sometimes you need that momentum to you know to get you in the door of places to help sell your service but along with it mm. Yeah, those are just a, a few points. It's, it's a delicate one, isn't it, of having the energy and the confidence to knock on doors to say, yeah, I can do that, um, but not to the point where it's arrogant or I'm going to solve the world. Don't you know what I've learned at various universities? That sense of overconfidence but incompetent. Um, the, the confidence to try – but but not necessarily to to present themselves as the the you know, all seeing omniscient omnipotent uh, practitioner. <laughs> so true. Yeah, it, you know it's so true, and there's such a there's such a balance to be had there, isn't there? You, you mentioned mistakes. Um, when I, I think this is such an important part of of growing as a practitioner, and I don't think it goes away because it's important to always learn and review and reflect, but. But the tolerance for mistakes, um, I'm curious to know what your perspective is now for emerging practitioners, people who you might be thinking, right, I want to put you in front of a client. Yeah. The, the margin for error um, seems to be getting tighter. Are we keen to get your thoughts as to whether, you know, you, do you have that sort of perfectionist streak of thinking, right, that practitioner has to be hundred percent ready to go before we let them go um or or does does it have some learning potential in there wow that's a really that's a really interesting point steve so how we set well how i deliberately set things up at intro was having a technical support and that really runs through and again going this is almost going back to learning uh you know steven and and one of the things that i was seeing especially within football and this is something we picked up on with our work with UEFA as well. We're speaking to different clubs across Europe. A lot of the feedback we're getting is that nutritionists can work in silo, especially junior nutritionists going in, because if it's your first role, and let's say a football club's advertising, you're looking for a foot in the door, as you mentioned. So you, you start the process, but you might not have the full understanding about how to work in an interdisciplinary way. So 
a lot of your work can be conducted in you know in silo so it might be delivered to players but it might not be as interdisciplinary as you'd like it and you might not have the supervision and the supervision is just a really important thing and i think we can all think of instances throughout our career where you're going to have things that really test you and you need someone to be able to share thoughts with and to get some technical support so much so steve you know i have technical support now i think it's i think it's so important you're, you're never too old for it i think it's really important to have meetings monthly with people to d- discuss technical cases now for me now the technical cases that i discuss might be less as a practitioner and they might be more as a business professional perhaps but you know this is still really important i think the other thing linked to this as well steve is that i think as practitioners now the responsibility i think as you mentioned of increase so what i mean by that is let's say you're a practitioner working within football i think if it was maybe 10 years ago 15 years ago a lot of your work would be player facing and you would be working maybe with a chef and you'd be working with other members of the multidisciplinary team doctor psychologists physio snc biomechanics sports science but now this team is extended you might be dealing with agents you know more and more you might be dealing more and more with partners you'll be dealing with club and player liaison officers you might be dealing with architects for the structure of you know new parts of training grounds you'll be dealing with a bigger chef team you might be dealing with the ceo uh you might be dealing with the exec team commercially legal team so actually your skill set now you're being pushed and pulled away from traditionally what we're taught through degrees and postgraduate degrees which is ultimately working with the athlete and a lot more of these conversations are a lot more commercial in nature and there's not a lot of things that prepare you for these so at times you know i really believe it's you know i believe strongly that you need someone just to run through the examples with you know to test and to see how they would apply it um and we try and do a similar thing with intra really steve you know in that the practitioners that we have for sure there's a development curve here and what what i tend to do is work very closely with our practitioners early on and the team work together just to try and get the way of working so our ethos around how we apply support how we apply our programs so that we're all really well aligned because you're definitely right the one thing we would never do is put a practitioner in to see an athlete until we were really comfortable that they understood our organization our ethos how we apply and i think then it's really just about almost graded exposure uh, to a degree and i think it's um we tend to sometimes double up on clients as well where there'll be a senior or technical support member and a practitioner and these different levels of service actually help to protect the practitioner slightly but also help to give some confidence both to the practitioner and to the client as well but having these different levels of support for us are extremely important and i think whether you're working within a consultancy within an organization i think having some technical support or mentorship is just so crucial um i'm really interested in your thoughts on that steve as well you know how are you seeing things you know with you know, sports science performance practitioners can i can i ask you another question before i answer because <laughs> I, I don't want to affect your answer um because you've demonstrated or you've you've mentioned your initiative your industry as a student you know that that sense of realizing okay the big bad world is about to to uh, arrive i need to do this do that get on a bus um knock on doors uh, meet people and start to see what that landscape looks like and so that let's take that as red that's mm-hmm. something that that i think nearly everybody recognizes that the student or the graduate needs to to work in that space they need to do more than just the grades um but given what you've just described about the complexities of the interactions what people will actually be doing as a practitioner provider and and if you think about your olympic experience and your football experience if if you were to campaign or suggest a change to a university program that could make space for just a little bit more what would that be because i'm just sensing that you've got to know your stuff 
You've got to be able to work with other people. You've got to be able to apply your knowledge, which is a skill set in itself. But then there's the whole complexity of the work environment. And I guess not all of it can be taught. Um, some of it might have to be supervised or taught outside. What would you suggest if a university program was sort of better supporting a graduate? Um, what would you love to see a little bit further progressed, a little bit further developed before people sort of come out of their formal education? Again, I think really challenging question, Steve. I think for me, the example I gave earlier on is where I'd go with this. And I would probably take elements of the UK Sport Fast Track Practitioner Programme and I would sandwich those into a postgraduate MSc programme. So, so we're taking a lot of the theoretical knowledge. And like you say, as read, obviously, young practitioners, you have to have the technical knowledge. You have to know to a degree how to apply that. But it's the situations like managing conflict and motivational uh, motivational change and motivational interviewing, you know, how you work in an interdisciplinary way. These were some of the modules um, that I remember from the Fast Track program. You know, another one was having difficult conversations. You know, and I'm sure you remember your early days as well, Steve, you know, those first conversations with coaches where you're actually having to push back, you know, you're the conduit between the coach and the athlete and your information isn't landing. And it's really tricky. The first couple of times, it feels really awkward, but to have a process and have a confidence in your process to be able to do that, I think is really important. So I would, in my first part is I would condense elements of this fast track program and I would put those into some MSc programs alongside, let's say, if this is an applied route within the course. So if people know they're going to be applying and being a practitioner, I think there's a pathway there. If it's research, then it might be a slightly different pathway, right? I think the two might fork out. Mm. Obviously, as we know, there's strong overlap between the two now, right? You can be a really strong applied researcher and practitioner as well. I think the other thing that I feel quite strongly about as well, Steve, and maybe this is on the course, maybe it's just a module. I think that the industry is really spread when it comes to nutrition in terms of career outcomes at the moment, right? And I think across all of the performance sciences. So, for example, you might be working in-house at a rugby team, a football team. You might be working in a UK sports institute. You know, you might be working as a researcher. But if you're not doing that, there's a lot of people here that are looking to build a business. And a lot of a lot of people, a lot of the practitioners that I speak to, and I remember from my early experiences, how do you go about doing that? You know, that 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 thing where, uh, you know, someone gave me a really good bit of advice early on that when you're in a sports and someone's pay paying for your block of time, your year's service, you're working with an athlete, you're pretty carefree because they know that you're there to deliver the best service to the athlete. And this is great. It's a really different thing when you've got someone on the other side of the table and they're coming to pay an amount to see you. The relationship changes. It could be one pound, it could be more. But as soon as the money's changing hands, what you have to deliver to them is value. And how do you go about doing that? How do you demonstrate the value? How are you really clear up front about the deliverables? Um, and I think in terms of small businesses within the UK, this goes across the entire sector, right? I think there needs to be more support for young entrepreneurs coming through and building businesses. But I think definitely this could be touched on more, that if you were building the future, what does it look like in 10 years? Do you want to be in-house? You know, one of the downsides is if you're working within the team, you might be doing lots of traveling. Now, this might be great in the early years, but when you're settling down, having a partner or family, it might not fit as well. So I think some of these, almost these outcomes with these roles and then some support on how to do these definitely on the business side and how to develop a small business. That's, that's fascinating. So I, I want to ask you about that um, entrepreneurial skill but going back to that experience that you had as a fast track practitioner program would it be fair to ask you whether that was the first time you sort of moved out of your comfort zone um and i'm i'm curious this is informed about the i suppose the, the i would see it as a bit of a ball and chain for a lot of universities that they they almost feel like they've the student satisfaction stops them from challenging, stops them from moving students out of their sort of, let, let's work in the library, then you write it up, then I mark it, and then that's the end of the transaction, um, rather than 
actually, you know what, today you're going to feel nervous. You're going to feel like you're de-skilled. <laughs> um, so, so tell me, how did it feel? What was that sort of sense of, of development that you had back then that we need to recreate a little bit more in, in courses? Uh, well, I think in terms of being outside of the comfort zone, I would say, you know, if I'm really honest, going back a step, that I was trying to do that for myself at doing these roles in the summer before the, the, the fast track practitioner program. But I think I could almost see on the horizon that there were limited jobs. And essentially, I had to be ahead of the people in my group. That, that was really important. So I think from that point, stepping out was important. In terms of technically, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. A few of these, a few of these courses, I think what the thing they did really well, I think at the start was framing framing what you're moving into and i think that just works wonders right steve because the one thing we knew was over the course of this year you're going to be put in difficult situations and i think because we knew up front it's this year is all about learning you know they said that mistakes are okay you're going to be challenged at, at times you're going to feel really uncomfortable at times I think we were ready for it. And I definitely think my uh, year group, you know, there were four nutrition interns. Uh, there was obviously Kev Carroll, who you know well, Mark Ellis and Navari Keel. You know, we were in the same year and we can almost work together as well and share these experiences. But we knew we were going to be challenged. And I think when you know challenge is coming, it's easier to accept and throw yourself into that. When it's just the unknown, you don't know whether it should feel right or not. But it, Again, this is probably coming back to this mentorship, technical supervision, support, whether this is done by an organization or a mentor such as UK Sports Institute, whether it's done, you know, such as our consultancy or a sport. I think having this overarching support early on is, is so important. Mm. And you mentioned there a, a key word about value and that, that sense of how it actually feels quite different when you're charging somebody directly for your time. And that that sharpens the focus on you delivering value. Is, is the assumption there that maybe you're not as value-focused if you've got the comfort of a salary, if you are perhaps the exchange or the discussion with a coach or an athlete doesn't go that well, Oh well, never mind. Or oh, the trouble with them is it gives you an excuse not to necessarily review and uh, refine your work. Is that what you're implying there a little bit? The relationship changes for sure. You know, and I, I'm sure you, you know, you'll feel the same with your work as well, Steve. That part of having a private practice initially, and you know, I'm probably fast forwarding a couple of steps here. I was working in-house at Arsenal and, you know, delivering there. And then, you know, suddenly you're, you're on Harley Street and you're delivering with clients. And firstly, you're thinking, well, actually, what's the value of the service I'm providing? You know, where is this mapped with other services on Harley Street? You know, what's my practitioner level? What's my competency? And also what are the deliverables that I can give to the client? And you're going for a bit of a journey early on to actually pitch your service at the right level. But for sure, I remember the first couple of consultations, I'm thinking, is it worth it? You know, is are they going to turn around and say, James, what, I'm paying X, you know, for, for this service? No, I'm not, I'm not paying for it. You know, there's, there's always part of you until you've tested something, you're, you're, you're never quite sure. And, and I'm saying that because everyone goes through this process. I remember at the start with the early clients, you know, we're, we're testing the model for sure as well because we're applying a lot of what we've learned in sport to the general public, which at the time was quite unknown. Um and then we've obviously got the business side too. But in answer to your question, Steve, it, yeah, it does change the relationship. And I think, I think for me, for the better, I think having a private practice or having one foot or having an interest outside of sports, I think there are learnings that kind of cross pollinate. So, for example, I think the business side outside of sport helps you to understand what it's like to build a caseload, what it's like to charge clients, what's the business stuff you might need to build. And then vice versa as well. I think there are skills from that that you bring into the sports as well around your time management, for example. The one thing you know is if you've got the clock on you for a consultation and it's an hour and you've got eight clients in that day, you're damn sure you're going to run to yeah. the hour. You're not going to overlap at all. Whereas sometimes in sport, obviously, it can be at times more fluid. But 
I think there are elements from your professional practice that you can bring in to your sports practice as well. Um, and that's definitely something that I felt strongly about. Yeah. And, and to sort of come back to your question about where do I think things are at, I think that there is a, a clear opportunity for everybody to play a greater role in this game, whether it's the universities, whether it's business, whether it's the industry of, of professional teams or um, Olympic teams, for example, but but equally governing bodies, whether that is the skill set, the accreditation systems that need to to modernize. I, I'm I'm thoughtful of uh, a team that I had to work with during the pandemic, who had financial instability because of the pandemic. Sponsorships were unstable, for example, and and we had to revise the composition of a support team across different disciplines. And I'm thoughtful of the nutritionist in that team um, who was five days a week and who went down to three days a week. And it meant then that that team not only had less resource to tap into, but that person had potentially had the threat of losing a little bit of livelihood. And so there was a need for, for me to support and revise and sort of think about the model for optimizing the team within a certain budget. But then the, what was really nice about that was that the, the team manager wanted to provide them with some support to help set up their business, um, give them that type of mentoring support that I could provide to them. And that was just an example of, of how the, the industry is changing. It's adapting. Um, the needs that were relevant yesterday are, are changing all the time um, about what we need to sort of gear up for. So, yeah, okay, interesting, interesting, interesting. The really important point you touch on there, Steve, um, and if I may, I'll jump in, because I think we need to recognise as well from a nutrition perspective, nutrition isn't as far along, it isn't at the table as much as sports science, as you know, as much as physiotherapy for sure, medical for sure, strength and conditioning for sure. If you look at all of the evidence that uh, FIFA has published from around the world, the lowest full-time equivalents are psychology and nutrition, and that's really known. And actually, the one of the things we need to think about with nutrition is it's still in its infancy in terms of the research. It's still in its infancy in terms of developing its own practice as well. So, and I'm definitely thinking in terms of some team sports, and particularly football here, that you know you're you're totally right. Unfortunately, sometimes. When there's a cut or when there's a you know a, a budgetary pinch point, sometimes it is nutrition that needs to go. But I'm always really mindful of the conversations that we have with different federations and confederations as well, just to really listen and where they pitch nutrition as well. Because I think sometimes within our own industry, we can see our own thing in a certain way, right? And we can have a certain bias towards our discipline. It's sometimes really interesting to get medical perspective on your discipline or commercially where it sits as well, or from an overall performance perspective. But there's no doubt as a, as a discipline, nutrition, we're making great strides and it's moving forward. We've got more practitioners on the ground now, you know, which is great. But I think we're always just really mindful of there's a lot of work to do in terms of full-time equivalents. And one of the things we need to do to have those is to have an impact. That's the only thing. If, if we're having an impact and we're demonstrating a return on investment for that sport and the sport is feeling it, it's going to mean there's more budget flowing down towards nutrition and create more jobs. So I'm always really mindful of this sort of macroeconomic landscape for performance sciences and definitely how nutrition fits within that. And, and how's that done? In what sense, Steve? What would be what would be the way in which you'd create the business case? Um, is that where there is greater evidence of impact that proves the point? That means that you can get from the pro, the that there's a problem with that athlete. Go and see them. So that bolt-on type service versus the proactive um, integrating, rem perhaps removing some of the decision-making um, aspects of of choice in nutrition. What's the what's the way in which you'd love to see this progress in the future? Well, I think for us, there's a couple of pieces here. The, the first piece is around 
understanding around stakeholder management and understanding so an example i've given a couple of times recently is obviously we have different generations of coaches and players now one of the things that we're seeing at the moment is we're now seeing let's say for example within olympic sports definitely within football and team sports as well athletes who practitioners when we were working within the institute and that sort of age when they were players they're now coaches they're now sporting directors so what that means is if they've had a good exposure as a player and good understanding, it's now more important to them. You know, and I can think of a few prominent managers now we've worked with on the way through, and it's really shaped their ethos and philosophy around performance and around how nutrition fits in. So I think that stakeholder management is absolutely crucial as well. And I think there's a really nice opportunity for that. I think the other thing as well that we need to do, Steve, if I'm honest, is create um, to build evidence. You know, to, to really build evidence in terms of how we're having an impact. So, for example, with a business project that we're working on at the moment, a really important thing for us as a business is to create evidence, you know, in terms of the impact we're having. And that might be through the competencies of uh, the different staff that we're working with. So, for example, one of the things that we tend to do is that the different tools or actions that we put in place for staff, we are actually asked then to capture the evidence of them applying these things. So it's something that we can build and it might be videos, it might be other other things as well. But when we're feeding these back to the organization, the evidence is there for all to see. And in a way, I think it's a similar thing in sports. You know, what we're looking to try and do is we're looking for our athletes to demonstrate competencies. And what I don't mean by that is they can answer questions in a quiz. Well, you know, what I'm meaning by this is we're working with athletes, coaching them, having lots of touch points so that in situations that are more stressful, maybe around competition, around matches, the performance staff, the executive are clearly seeing that they are using our strategies and using them well. This might be really clear to a fitness coach who's traveling with a team that on match day, they can see that through the understanding and trialing of these different strategies, athletes are asking for these. I think one sport that did this really well, Steve, if I'm honest, is track and field. And I'm almost thinking back to some of our work then. You know, one of the things that we would see with the athletes is they would be great at taking on board the strategies and being really clear with their race timeline for the day, when they're fueling, when they're activating, warming up, when they're hydrating, all of these different factors. It was really clear and tangible. And I think actually with a lot of the work with the sport, we need to try and find ways and sometimes be quite inventive to show our competency because, again, the more we can demonstrate that, the more the sport is going to say, hey, look, if I'm investing X in a service, we can start to potentially start to map out our return and investment. That's a more complex model, but we need to be having the conversations around that. It's a great answer. And I think that that, that idea of evidence is probably pervasive. Um, show me. Show me that it works. Show me it's worth my time. Show me that it. I've got a return from that. I'm I'm curious, and and and, and I was just thinking of athletics as you were sort of exp, uh, as you were explaining that. But there tends to be a high level of literacy in the area. People will know maybe what glycogen depletion really feels like. Um, they will have periods of time where they are injured because they're pushing the boundary. So that they know that there's there's something that they can do whilst they're injured around their nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a literacy around that in that sport most of the times. What's been your experience of being able to build that culture of of acceptance? I'm, 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 this is this is as much as anything because nutrition is an emotive thing for a lot of people in business, in football, in Olympic sport. Um, what have you been encountering when you've gone into those environments and what are the things that you're looking for that informs your strategy and your approach about how you bring that to life? And this is, this is Steve, around the culture of yeah. individuals or around building the culture to take a team forward. Oh, you, I know it's a big question, isn't it? Thank you for dividing it further, but it's, uh, <laughs> what, what, uh, yeah, both, if you could, uh, if you could address that. So 
if we can unpack this slightly then so let's let's have a look then firstly a team approach and you know what i would say is within the team sport we've i always say we have two trains running you know we have the team strategies so for example i use football because i think it's um it's an example i think probably a lot of your listeners will understand you know in terms of the environment but obviously what we tend to have is we have different strategies for different days you know there might be a match day minus one and on match day minus one there'll be almost like a set routine around training so it means we can advise around nutrition on that day same with the match day there'll be a plan throughout the day in terms of um, travel, in terms of nutrition, in terms of team meetings, in terms of the performance itself, in terms of recovery, you know, a really nice flow. So at a team level, one of the things that we're trying to do is put in place really strong protocols for all of the team to follow, you know, which encapsulates the whole of the squad and takes them through. Now, obviously, that those are on different days within the training environment there's different monitoring and testing let's not go on to those for the moment but within that we've got teams of individuals right we've got a lot of nuance here because the second part of this is that let's say you're working in the premier league at the moment if you're working in the premier league we know that approximately 60 percent of players are expatriate 60 percent pretty big number i mean this is this has grown since the mid 90s since the bosman ruling we've seen more and more free migration of players so this will mean that if you're working with a first team squad in the premier league you might be dealing with 16 nationalities at minimum maybe up to 20 different nationalities it's a, it's a big ask isn't it you know i think if we said to someone in a business context uh for someone to work in that way you know it's a big ask there so how do we go about, you know, working with them? Well, look, I think there's a couple of really interesting points. And I think the, the first thing is we're trying to set up a couple of things. The first is working in a way which empowers the players. So we're trying to get to players to understand why they're doing things. And this is really important, understanding the why. Because as soon as players understand the why, like you said in track and field, which the athletes did really well, there's more chance that they're going to apply it. For example, composition of the the pre-match meal. You know, why am I eating these foods? Why am I eating it at this time? You know, what's the reasoning that's given to the player? If, for example, let's use a really small example here. Someone's during the winter is taking a vitamin D supplement. You know, what's what's that doing? What does it look like? What's the function? Why are you taking it at that time of day? Because otherwise, what we tend to see and what we need to try and avoid is... For example, supplement just looks like a pill, you know, to a player. You're giving a player a few different supplements. Unless they really understand, you're giving them a couple of different types of pill. Now, obviously, that that's quite problematic. So I think for us, it's trying to set up a culture where we understand about the player, we're trying to work with them, and we're trying to help them develop their own strategies, helping them to co-create these strategies. And this is probably coming on to a bigger point here, Steve, that, the two key things I'm kind of swimming into now are number one, that players take ownership for their nutrition. So for example, whether it's a match day, whether it's a training day, we really need to strike the balance as practitioners of educating, upskilling, then stepping back and allowing the players to execute the strategies themselves. Sometimes the tendency can be to step forward and if we are stepping forward it can smother the players at times we're desperate to have an impact potentially as practitioners so it's really important for us we set up a nice process where we're advising the players letting the players implement and then also feeding back and this is coming on to my second point here steve as well one of the challenges that we have with nutrition historically is that with athletes it was often seen as a bit of a one-stop shop and what i mean by that is you go and see a nutritionist for a plan. Okay, what's my training nutrition plan? You know, what's my plan for match day, et cetera. It's really important, going back to this word framing, that at the start of the journey, we're working with the squad as a whole and with individual players. And we're saying, hey, look, this is how we're going to apply nutrition. The relationship that you and I are going to have is one where we're working together. But it's an iterative process. So what I expect from you is we might sit down and have a meeting for 10 minutes because the thing that we're working on is your recovery post-match. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to work with you to see about what's this strategy you're going to try this weekend 
You might try it in training first of all, try it this weekend. You're then going to feed back to me. How did it go from your perspective? We're going to speak to the other performance science team. What data do we have to support your subjective view? And then when we can say, well, look, do we need to tweak this further or is that now stuck? Okay, so we might be happy with that. We might then move on to another area. It might be around sleep. It might be around travel. There are lots of these different scenarios that I believe over a period of time we're working through with our athletes. But it's really important we frame that it's an iterative process to them so they understand this. It's not a passive process where we give them a plan, where we give them, we plate up the food, you know, where we give them a shake of some description. It's really important that it's a two-way conversation, I think. Okay, so so I've heard over the years about this kind of the rise of the performance chef and nutritionists working with the catering staff, uh, which feels smart, you know, provide you with a selection of, of options. And within that range, that margin, you're not going to go far wrong. And then potentially that there's private chefs that are taking the decision-making out effectively plating things up and providing good nutritious and hopefully tasty food for people who can afford that type of level of service. But my concern over the years hearing that is that that doesn't empower the athlete. And you're still saying that's important. You're still saying we do need to do the education so that they connect with it at a deeper level so that they're motivated and and focused on taking those daily actions that they need to, to, to perform and to recover and to, to optimize them themselves. Yeah, I, I'm saying absolutely that Steve. Yeah. And I'm, what I'm not saying is that it, each individual will have a different way that they set up their food service. Some athletes and players will have private chefs. That's absolutely great. Some will have partners that will cook for them. Absolutely great. Some will cook for themselves, whichever really works for that environment. But Whatever happens, whatever whoever's preparing food in a club or a training environment or at home, it's still really important that the player or the athlete is part of that decision-making process. Because there's times where, and this is the classic example for me, if we take football as an example again, because it's quite an easy one to apply here. Let's say you're a Premier League player. You've got a really nice home environment set up. You've got your chef that comes in and prepares the food. Food at the training ground is great. Different products are laid out. You've got a really nice structure. However, what happens then when you're on international uh, duty during Copper America? I guarantee you the setup's different. So you're having then to take ownership on these things, your, your traveling strategy. How are you preparing for the match? What food are you eating as well? So it's really important, and just, this comes back to this empowerment piece, that the athlete is driving this process. And I think performance chefs can work really well. All of these things can work really well, but it's just always really important the athletes in the middle of it. Hmm. And tell me a little bit about your work with musicians then. So what's the approach there? What's, what's the demand? Now, I'm just assuming that as, a, as someone who didn't quite make it for football, but probably sounds quite handy on a park, um, you had an already an, a, a clear understanding of what the demands of of modern day football are, but talk to me a little bit about that work because that sounds like an interesting opportunity, not only for impact, um, but but also incredible opportunity to branch performance nutrition to a different industry. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a really interesting one, Steve. I, I actually still remember the phone call I got when uh, the, the first musician that we really worked with in depth. Um, and again, I won't name names on this, but in terms of the profile of the musician, I had a call, a prominent musician who was going to headline Glastonbury, headline the pyramid stage at Glastonbury, which for a musician is the biggest accolade. You know, if you're playing on a headline uh, gig and... I said, look, would you be interested in meeting? There's some work here to be done around nutrition. I said, well, yeah, absolutely. This, this is great. And it was only then sitting down with the musician and understanding their goals and process that it was so similar to the work we do with an athlete. You know, there were, there were certain questions that were bubbling up. You know, some of these questions were, hey, look, on the night, so on the performance night, it's going to be a longer set. The set's going to be more energetic. 
okay, that's really interesting. Okay, so there's going to be an element of improving physical capacity, improving in fitness coming into this. So that was a really interesting point, first of all. We also know that when you're playing under the lights, there's something around here, the temperature on the night as well, and the ambient temperature that we'd expect for that performance at that time of year with Glastonbury. So again, there's an interesting question, but also leading up to that, whilst improving fitness, there was a question around body composition and how and how that wanted to look as well alongside the training. So before you know it, we've actually got quite a lot of components here that are really very similar to the way we work with athletes, but with one really key difference. It's not elite sport, it's music. And I think that contextual side of things was something I was quite aware of early on. And I think for me, it was really trying to understand the culture of this particular genre of music. And I think that was really important. So I think at the start, Steve, it was about a lot of listening, you know, straight away, because I think even in our first initial meetings, even the way with some of the terminology we used or we refer to, let's say the day of the performance versus the match day, there were lots of different things that were going to be obviously very different. There's time in the studio. What does that time look like? Is it as structured as sport? Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. So I think for me, there was a real deep dive, I would say, over a few weeks to really try and understand not just the performer, but their ecosystem. You know, Who do they have around them as well? Management, tour staff, what does a tour look like? You know, What food's available? So I think for me, the process was very similar. That was really easy. The contextual side was something deliberately I really wanted to ease into. And I, I just asked lots of questions and probably not pretend that I knew the environment because I didn't know the environment. So being, I think, really clear that, hey, look, I have expertise in this space. I'm going to look to apply it. Let's talk. I've got tons of questions for you. I'm really interested to hear about this, this, and this. And I remember actually really landed for me, Steve. I remember going to see a couple of the rehearsals and it was real hairs on the back of your neck stuff, you know, standing up. And I think it was only really then and seeing how the whole production came together, you think, okay, this is, this is really very interesting. Um, I wonder how we can apply our service and actually make it more and more nimble because I probably haven't quite got it to this point. You know, now we've got a bit more work to do before the uh, main event. Amazing. Uh, um, and you know, that, that type of, that type of um, performance and thinking about what, what determines effective performance, what, um, what goes into the preparation for that, the, the support team around that, but also what could be the hijacks around that you know i'm sure you're you know, i've no doubt you'd be putting an immune support system pack in there around uh you know preventing or doing what you can to minimize the chance of upper respiratory tract infections because that, that's going to kibosh a voice isn't it I, I guess i'm just freestyling now yeah no you're, you're entirely right uh, you know and i think this is part of a risk management for any for any client that you take on and the process is you know, the same, Steve, right? We're working backwards from that day, you know, from that big day. And it's exactly the same for me. I think there's a real likeness here, less so with team sport, but there's a real likeness that let's say back in the day, we had an athlete going to the world champs. I mean, I think, what was it? 2007 was Osaka, let's say. I think my memory serves me correctly. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got an athlete peaking probably for six, you know, six months going into that event and the training, the detail, the rest, the recovery, all of these things have to be going right because if it's slightly wrong on the day, you know, it, the whole thing's in jeopardy. So I, I would say there's a really strong likeness, maybe more so to the musician and some of our Olympic athletes rather than the team sport athletes. Yeah. <clears throat> so many different insights from across the different uh, ranges there. Um, it, it strikes me as though the common thread is there staying curious and, and being open to asking good questions, understanding the culture, working with the people around you, as opposed to coming in with just a copybook of this is the way I do my work. Uh, and, and it sounds like that's not only been central to your work, but also it's quite universal approach to 
the executive market to musicians, to sport team or Olympic over the years, um, how you've built your career? Yeah, I think that's right, Steve. I think the curiosity is really important. I think probably the transparency, I use this word transparency, I think that's really important. We use that a lot within our team, just about being really transparent about what you do know and what you don't know. And I think that's whether we're working with someone outside. I had a, a conversation with a practitioner I worked with the other day. We work very closely. And we just say, hey, look, we'll challenge each other. And we have a relationship. We work really hard to challenge each other. So again, we frame this relationship. We've said to get the most from each other, we're going to make each other feel difficult at times. But we're really comfortable with that. And if we don't know the answer, we'll say, and we'll go and get that answer. And I think I think it's probably just this realization and to reinforce that within a sports setting, you don't have to know all the answers. You know, that that's impossible. So don't put your pressure on yourself to do that. But if you don't, you need to have people around you that you can ask and help improve and, and learn that knowledge as well. So I think that's, yeah, I think that's an important element. Mm. Superb, James. I love, love chatting to you. And I'm just curious to know what's next for you. Um, intra is start to establish. Um, where where um, do you go next? Uh, it's yeah, it's, it's it's a really interesting question, probably relatively timely as well, Steve. Um, yeah, so I think for for us and Intra, we've I think got a foothold now. Uh, we've got, got a nice team, and I'm really looking for us to increase. You know, our work. A big focus for us is within individual uh, athletes, individual players, as I mentioned, and to work really closely with national federations and clubs to get the communication right around this pathway as well. So. That's, a, that's one aspect for us that's really important. And I think the other side is, you know, how can we continue to learn within business and how can we continue to apply nutrition in different ways? And, de- and going back to this word of impact, how can we demonstrate our impact in this setting where within corporate wellness, it's traditionally been a bit more difficult. Um, for me personally, um, I've just actually embarked on a new venture that I'm working in now, and that is working um, within investments. So I'm going to go into almost be now working as an with an investment group to help looking at forthcoming performance ventures as well to understand what's going to have an impact on society, what's going to have an impact uh, right across the board. So I'm really interested uh, in that uh, next step as well. This is alongside intra, uh, but I think for me, Steve, one of the big drivers is you know working on projects that will have a big impact for individuals, but. Is always, you know, how, how can we improve our ecosystem of performance and also wider society? So, essentially, how can we answer big questions and you know, and work with trusted people to do those? Amazing. Sounds like a, a challenge in itself for you, but an opportunity for personal growth, but much wider impact, as as you allude to there. So that sounds like an incredible next few years ahead for you, James. Um, thank you so much for spending the time to to chat to me great to catch up um after all these years um a real shot of clear thinking that i've i've enjoyed uh from you over the years um so thank you so much that's my pleasure steve and uh well the next time it'll be a coffee down in london now yeah coffee down in that at the arsenal training ground maybe yeah fantastic (laughs) sounds great thanks for having me on steve Thank you so much for taking the time to listen i really hope you enjoyed this week's conversation and we've got plenty more to come so if you'd like to support and champion us then take the time to subscribe and leave a review on spotify itunes stitcher youtube or wherever you tune in you can also give us a follow on twitter instagram and linkedin all the links are in the show notes so in the meantime have a great week